phones waiting on Nolan. If you guys uh, want notes, there are notes back there. Also, there are Bibles back there for your viewing uh, pleasure. We'll be going out of the ESV tonight, but you are welcome to use any translation. New World is not approved. But. <laughs> Let's go ahead and uh, we'll pray, and then uh, we'll start off. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Lord, I pray that you would just bless this time tonight. I pray that you would just uh, use this bit of time that we have when we're uh, studying your word uh, to do some work on us, Lord, to um, mold us into people that look like your son. Not because we're great, not because we deserve it, not because of anything we've done, but because of how great you are. Uh, work a miracle in us tonight, Lord, in your name. Amen. Um, all right, so I get the pleasure of teaching you guys, and I was just thinking of some things I needed to make sure I said, so I'm writing them down. So talk amongst yourself. Um, <laughs> Luke chapter 2, um, we're continuing on in the Gospel of Luke, the physician, the uh, historian extraordinaire, and uh, we are missing Kent, I feel like we should have another chair up here, you know, just to kind of, <laughs> in, honor of in honor of Kent. We tried to get him to Skype with us, you know, we could have a little camera and he could be seeing you guys. Um, I'm not sure if it was April or Kent that said no to that, but it was kind of a resounding no. Um, so, hopefully they're listening to this podcast, we miss you. Um, we're going to go ahead and read. We're starting verse 40. And uh, I'm kind of going to go back a little bit because I want to make sure that we get the, the setup for this because I know Nolan talked about it a little bit, but we're going to go ahead and start in verse 40. And the child, Christ, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the Lord was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be with the group, that they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? They did not understand what he spoke to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay, so we got a lot of cool stuff in this passage. Um, I want to start, we're going to start actually at the end, in verse 51, and then we'll get back to the beginning, and I want to set up kind of the stage. So at the very end, we see um, the very last <laughs> sentence of verse 51, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Um, that is really Luke saying, you know, this came directly from Mary, okay? Um, this was, this was uh, I'm not sure what question Mary was answering at this point. Um, maybe it was... Hey, you know, uh, I know Jesus wasn't doing his public ministry yet, but what do you remember most? And Mary sat there and kind of was like, hmm, oh, this one time we went to the temple. Let me tell you about it. And so it was uh, one of those those kind of parenting moments that you're just like, I'm going to remember this forever. Um, and, you know, even though we've had only four years now, there are a few moments um, I can think of. Most of them revolve around doctor's offices um, and uh, exploding bodily fluids and things like that. But that's not for church consumption. So, um, but things like that, you know, um, you have those little stories. But this is one of those times where it's like, 
it's that crowd that you know that's my boy and I, I got to see that so Mary was kind of the, uh, the the source of this and so that's kind of a cool thing that we get to go hey this is something that Mary thought was important and obviously God thought it was important because he brought it to her, her mind and it was included in the scriptures so very cool thing so let's go back to the beginning now uh, back in verse 40 now um, this is called a pronouncement account which is where basically Jesus's role his goal in life is is made bare in the Gospels. There's lots of these, uh, but this is one that is very specific. Jesus says, I'm going to be of my, my Father's work. Um, and so that's that's very cool. This is also a period that is called the silent years. Uh, really, we have Jesus' birth. There's a lot of a lot of words and a lot of uh, phrases and stuff about that. And then we get his circumcision, his dedication and naming. And then we get this story, and then all we get is his baptism and then the rest of his life. So really, Jesus' life is, uh, as we see it in these biographies of him, these Gospels, is really year 30 to year 30 or so uh, of his life. And so um, it's interesting. And then, so we're going to spend a little bit on this today. Um, and then next week, we start into actually his public ministry. Um, so it's kind of funny because there's a lot of uh, ridiculous um, ridiculous cults and things that have sprung up after the fact hundreds of years later that have tried to fill in this gap and Jesus you know one time sneezed and knocked everybody over with his <laughs> divine sneeze or you know things just ridiculous things like that um, you know Jesus kind of being like the bully where he would you know kill things and then bring them back to life just to show off and um, those are absolutely just ridiculous and yeah there's no better word for it than that um, so that's where we're at with that now they, uh, so the parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. So now, for most people, that would make a lot of sense. Most people that would be reading this back in the day would go, oh, Passover, that's this. And we know that Passover takes place in Exodus 12, when the angel of the Lord comes in and kills all the firstborns, kind of a picture of Christ coming. They put the blood on the crossbeam above the door, and there's a lot of symbolism in that. Uh, but in Leviticus 23... This was a, a command of the Lord where he said, you will celebrate the Passover. And it's one of, uh, really, it's one of three great periods of feasts that the Jewish calendar had. And so um, one of the things we see is we need to kind of know when these time frames and stuff was. Let's see if my clicker actually works. It stopped it. There we go. Um, so the, uh, the main thing we need to know is the different feasts. So the first one is Passover and first fruits, and these usually happen in March and April. Uh, the Passover would be uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so they would have this basically like saying, hey, we're remembering the Passover and what you did getting us out of Egypt. And then the first fruits was basically to say, thank you, Lord, for um, our, our harvest. And this was an eight-day eight kind of festival. Passover starts on one Sunday, and then they would have gone through the next Sunday. And so that would have been in March and April. We, we come really close to celebrating that on Easter, um, the way we figure Easter and the way the Jewish people figure Passover can sometimes not align. But that's that. Um, the next one we see is Pentecost, which is 50 days after uh, the Passover, and it happens... Um, it's just another feast. Usually for that feast, it's just the men that would go to that one. Um, families usually all try to go to the Pente uh, Passover. And then the last one, which is now called Yom Kippur, um, <laughs> trumpets, which is the start of the year. And they would actually, you know, blow the trumpets and it'd be, hey, you know, it's the beginning of the year. They'd have the Day of Atonement. That's where the uh, sacrifice would be made for all the people. And then they have the Feast of the Tabernacles, also called the Feast of the Booths. Um, there's a couple different ways that those are, and those are all in September. And this is like a two-week feast. This is a one- or two-day feast, and that's a one-week feast. Um, so 
what we see is that um, these feasts were all about remembering the past. And um, tonight our goal is, and I need your guys' help on this, is as we look at this passage, we're going to kind of do some detective work. Uh, because this passage seems to say something that I think a lot of people, if they just read through it briefly, would go, oh, well, that doesn't make any sense. And so I'm going to need your guys' help because I got some pretty good application at the end, I think, the Lord's put on my heart. But I need some help getting that application big enough that it applies to everybody here. So I know we have some noted scholars in the room, um, and I'm going to expect you guys to have something. So get on it. All right. So when we get to the end here, uh, be ready for that. You know who you are. All right. So um, let's all go verse by verse. Verse 40, Jesus grew and became strong. Um, Even though he was completely God, he still grew as a child. Remember, he's the God man. All right. So he is not, um, he's not, he's fully God, but he's fully man. There's not any 50% of this, 50% of that. 100%, 100%. So what does that mean? Does that mean he came out of the womb and he's like, hey, make sure you snip that nice and close. I wanted any, right? Is that what he said to the doctor when he was born? Um, was he able to, he goes, you know, I don't need diapers, mommy. I can control it. You know, I'm, was he walking immediately? No, he wasn't. We see him growing and we see him increasing in stature. But yet the whole time he's without sin. So there's this back and forth. Even my little baby girl, uh, who's really not baby anymore. She's a toddler. You know, and we think of her as this innocent little child. She still does that, you know, that gets mad at you when you tell her not to do something. You know, it's like you're one years old. You shouldn't be sinning yet. But yeah, we see that. And so, you know, how do we make sense of all of this? He was a child, but yet he didn't sin. And this verse today, this chapter, this section we're going through, looks a lot like Jesus might have sinned. Right? Mom and dad are leaving a city and you don't show up for a whole day. All right, you know, I mean, how many of you think that your parents might introduce their your hand their hand to your butt after yeah. that? Maybe, right? Okay, so you, you're kind of going, wait, how, this sounds like a sin. So we got to do some detective work. Okay, so our detective work is to try to figure out how this makes sense. Um, I like what Piper said about this verse. Verse, uh, evidently, the incarnate Christ was able somehow to bracket or limit the actual exercise of his divine powers, so that he had the personality of God, basically the motives and will of God. But the powers of knowing all and the infinite strength of God, he somehow restrained. They were his potentially, and thus he was God, but he surrendered them absolutely. And so he was, they're used absolutely, so he was a man. So there's this, there's this, that's one of those things that we just are not going to completely get. You know, like when you try to explain the Trinity or we try to explain certain things. How is it he's fully man, fully God? I don't know, but it's on my list of things to ask him uh, when we get there. Verse 40, remember also, if you have comments or questions, please just go with them. Um, I'm going to keep talking until someone stops me. So. Um, his parents were very devout. Notice in verse 41 it says, Now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now why does this, why does this matter? Doesn't all of Israel go? Yes. But again, usually it was just the men. Um, and notice it says the man and the wife, the, the husband and wife, Mary and Joseph, went every single year. They didn't miss it. This was their custom. It was a tradition. They just were like, we're going. Um, now, there's over 100 miles from Nazareth to, um, to Jerusalem as the crow flies. But as the Jewish person who wants to avoid Samaria has to walk, it's about 140 to 180 miles. So this would take about three days time just to travel. And then it's an eight-day feast and then three days travel back. So you're talking about a good two, maybe even into two and a half weeks worth of time away. And so Mary makes this trip every single year. 
and she has to leave her family, her kids, because we know that Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin and she did have other kids. Jesus had brothers and sisters. They're all not virgin born. So therefore, she left those kids at home and he had sisters and so on. But Luke is stressing that his parents are law-abiding, devout Jewish people. Their sign of devotion is that they're going to this every single year. Um, and they stayed there in Jerusalem every year, even though it was inconvenient, you know. Um, so we're starting to see, you know, why it is exactly that God chose Mary. And, you know, Mary was a very devout believer. Uh, but we need to understand that that's one way to look at it. A better way to look at it is that Mary was open to God. He chose her. And then as a result of that, she wants that intimacy with him over and over again. Um, it's not, hey, I've been chosen. I'm God's child. Yay. Great for me. I'm so perfect. It's God's chosen me. I'm his child and I can't help but give it back to him. So it's that chicken or the egg thing. And really it's God started in her and she continues to reciprocate that and keeps drawing back to him and so on. Think about that intimacy she wants to have and that, you know, the temple really represents uh, God's presence on earth. Um, and that's where God would make his presence most, most, you know, potent right there at that place. And so by going there, she was basically coming up to that. And we need to point out too, and this is something for all of us, is that when it comes to our devotion, our devotion to um, anything does not save unless it's devotion to our Heavenly Father. So that means that if you're going to church every single day and you think somehow that church every Sunday or Saturday or, you know, certain amount of Bible reading every morning is going to save you, you're absolutely wrong. Um, and I was just hit over the head with this like five or six times, so I finally listened. Um, and uh, Matt Chandler, a guy who's been through the ringer, he uh, uh, gave a sermon called The Demonic Danger of a church on every corner, which right there you're going, okay, that probably was just a title to get my attention. But actually, he's pretty serious about it. And um, what he said is this. This is from uh, his teaching in Galatians. Here's what's crazy about this text in Galatians. If you are here because you're, you believe your attendance here somehow keeps you in right standing with God, or that it somehow saves you, then you have bought into this kind of cyclical belief system that your attendance here is a means of salvation. According to this text, you are enslaved to elementary principles, and what you are doing here is worshiping demons and not Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds pretty hardcore, but I gotta tell you, he lays it right out there that if you come to church for any reason other than to adore Christ, to draw near to him, to worship him, to thank him, to adore him, you are doing it unto something else, and that something else in Galatians is a demon. Um, and so that's crazy to think about. You know, we don't think about, hey, Sunday morning, you know, Ken's up there leading worship. You know, some people in here are worshiping a demon. You know, we don't think that way. But that's what the, that's what the verses are saying. And so Mary and Joseph don't get caught up in what all the other people are getting caught up in. And that's really that they're worshiping uh, this building right here. They're worshiping the temple. The temple has really become an idol um, for a lot of people at this point in um, Israel's history. And so um, it's no wonder that God destroys it. And uh, we see that in about 63, 64 AD. So Jesus goes to the temple. This is the first time he'd been back there um, since his circumcision and his dedication. Um, and basically what Jesus is going through is he's 12 years old. Um, this is where in verse 42 now, he's 12 years old, which means he's a year away from manhood. Okay. Um, and that's just crazy to think about but remember we talked about how mary was probably only 15 or so 16 and she's getting married mm -hmm. also having a baby but a boy at the age of 12 is is basically a year away from manhood 
Um, in modern Jewish culture, we call this the bar mitzvah. Uh, this was not around yet. They didn't call it that, but there was something in place similar to that. Bar mitzvah means uh, a son of the commandment. Uh, but the concept was here then, and that basically was 12 years old and younger, okay, you know what, you don't understand the law, you don't understand the rules, we're really not holding you accountable. So really the age from 12 to 13 was their age of accountability. So what they would do when they turned 12 is they would go to the temple and they'd have a full basic week of teaching. All right? They'd be taught all the different things about the commandments and then for their next year, so their 12th year into their 13th year, they would basically apprentice with their dad and their dad would teach them the job. Now, the dad probably had done that a little bit before, you know, extra hands make the work less, you know, kind of thing, but the dad's goal for that year was to show them how to do a job and then show them the law in practice. So the dad's really kind of going, watch how I'm doing the law, right? And so the son's supposed to then emulate the dad and there's that, there's that connection there. So um, Jesus was there. He's 12 years old. Um, and yeah, so verse 43, the feast was ending. Um, now, we don't really know where Jesus was at the time. Um, we know that this was built by Herod. We know that it was bright white. All the stones behind the gold part there would have been bright white. And you couldn't even look at it if the sun was out. Um, the teaching probably took place in one of the two rooms off the side at the front, right by the women's uh, sector, which is that big area with the four pillars. Um, so it happened somewhere in there. Mary and Joseph would have been staying somewhere nearby, um, but uh, we don't really know exactly where things happened and so on. So the feast was ending, so this would have been after about eight days in town, um, and they decided it was time to, to get together and go. So uh, we don't know the actual basics of it, if they said, okay, everybody meet here tomorrow or whatever, or if it was just assumed, but they would start a caravan. And the way the caravan worked was the women and children would set out first, and they would get in a big herd and start walking, and the men would come, uh, and they would walk at the very back, you know, kind of all walking together. Because usually what happened is if, if robbers came, they would come and attack from the rear, so the men in the rear would make it, um, would make it safer. And so one of the things we see, and this is starting that detective work, is that Mary and Joseph, you know, they, they don't confirm that Jesus is with them. Why would they do that, right? Why would they go, well, I hope he got up this morning and, you know, showed up at, you know, the place to meet, and I hope he's up there with the other kids playing and doing whatever. They didn't, they didn't think to look. I mean, that's like the first thing we do. Like today we were at a party, and Kyle was out of my eyesight for a second. I'm like, where did he go? Where is he, you know? Um, he was dressed like a bear, which is kind of fun too. But, um, you know, so I'm like, where is he? Where is he? And then he was behind the slide, and, you know, I'm thinking he's falling or, you know, he got eaten or something. You know, and we're in the middle of Fairview, so I'm not sure how that, all that would happen. But I'm like of the mindset, I want to know where he is. So what was the deal with jo jo uh, Joseph and Mary? They just let him go? Well, what this tells me is this tells me that Jesus was responsible, right? If you're a responsible kid, you know, parents are going to be like, okay, we can leave you at home. You're not going to throw a big razor and you're not going to go do stupid stuff, right? Um, and you know what that's like, you know, when you've earned that parent's trust. So Jesus obviously was different than a lot of 12-year-olds, okay? And I know some people in here have had 12-year-olds or currently have 12-year-olds or maybe, I don't know, other things about 12-year-olds. Maybe you're still acting like 12-year-olds. But 12-year-olds um, don't necessarily earn your trust a lot of times. I mean, if anything, they've kind of gone the opposite direction. So there's something different about Jesus. Mom and dad, you know, are like, he must be up there because it's time to go and uh, we're good to go. I'm, I'm just talking to you. Cruise already. on, my friend. Okay. I like um, yeah. Um, I was also kind of thinking like they they might have not been like also responsibly, but I was thinking like they might not have been as worried about him as they, I mean, they were very trusting in God, obviously. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that, that, that thing we talked about with Mary. That's right. When Mary did this trip to Elizabeth, you know, she's a 16-year-old girl pregnant, and she was in barefoot. But she was pretty, you know, pretty much everything else that she had going against her, and she's walking to go see Elizabeth, you know, 100 miles away by herself. You know, that's like, okay, that's like on the list of things not to do. But yet she does it because she trusts God. God's, God said, I have this baby. This baby's going to be born, so I have to be alive for it to be born. You know, I mean, this whole virgin birth thing, yeah, it's kind of weird. Maybe I can be dead and you can have him born. I don't know. But, you know, so she's trusting God. And yeah, so Mary, maybe Mary and Joseph are, not tr- are trusting God. But we do see they're good parents because later on they go back. Right. And they, they go, okay, we'll be by ourselves now walking through thief-infested areas. Um, so they do trust. And there's also the fact maybe his family was there and acquaintances. Uh, this would have been pretty much a big group of people that they knew and trusted going with them. So I think it's definitely that Jesus was trustworthy and, you know, maybe they're trusting the Lord. So at sundown, Mary and Joseph, they realize Jesus is not with them. They search all through the caravan, you know, did he get in the, did he come out of Jerusalem? Did he get attacked? Did he get eaten by wild animals? What, has anybody seen him? And so uh, through their investigation, um, they basically come to the idea that he probably didn't leave Jerusalem, right? So we didn't forget him. We didn't, you know, he didn't walk the wrong fork in the road or whatever, uh, and so now and Joseph are stuck. What, what are we going to do? So in uh, verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. You know, and I just wonder what they're thinking at this point. You know, um, for them, it's now we have to take our lives into it because guess what? We have to walk back home or we have to walk home. We have to walk to Jerusalem. So this is six more days, you know, and Mary's probably thinking, well, I got other kids to take care of, but this is God's son, you know, kind of back and forth type of thing. Um, and another thing to consider is, you know, they're worried about him and they're fearful, but they're probably getting that anger as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I just was thinking, I wonder what was going through Mary and Joseph's head, you know, of like, man, I hope he's safe so I can kill him. You know, which if you think about it, they're talking about God. That's probably not a good thing to be thinking. But um, they're, they're going, you know, I hope he's safe, but I'm so upset with him. And I, I know parents have experienced that. And you guys have had that. And your parents, everybody's parents are here at some place have experienced that. Um, and if you don't believe me, just ask them. When was the last time you were scared I was alive, but you were really ready to kill me? They probably have several stories. You know, it could be when you were really young and you walked away, or it could be, you know, whatever. So um, Mary and Joseph are fearful. They're, they're scared. Uh, and then in verse 46, uh, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers um, and teaching and so on. So three days, one of the ways I've heard this makes sense is that they were one day away. So they had traveled a day. So they had to travel that day back. And then they had to look around Jerusalem to find him. And they probably started where they, where they stayed. And then they, they probably went to, you know, the, the, the different stores and things like that. And they, the last place they thought of was in the temple. They thought, oh, he wouldn't be in the temple. You know, it's just a bunch of uh, teachers and, you know, things like that. But apparently he had been there for all three days. Um, and a lot of times, uh, the people, when they read this, and it says listening and asking them questions, a lot of people, for some reason, and I think maybe the person who um, drew this or painted this kind of did the same thing. I always love how Jesus is white. Yeah. Because um, he wasn't. Um, but, uh, you know, they kind of like, well, Jesus was clearly, you know, schooling them, you know, and the rabbis. But that's not what the verse says. And we don't want to go farther than what the Bible actually says. And what the Bible says was that after three days, he found them sitting among the teachers, not standing over with PowerPoint and lecturing, right? <laughs> Listening to them and asking them questions. 
Anywhere in there, does anybody see Jesus was telling them what for and telling them what? We don't see that. Now, granted, there was a teaching style, a very Socratic teaching style that the rabbis would do, where they would ask questions, Mm -hmm. and they would get you to think about things by more and more questions. Um, We might be able to say Jesus was doing that, but really, honestly, I think what we see here is we see Jesus' humility. Well, and sitting among, Mm -hmm. I think, implies among, because there was this Moses' seat was the center seat for the teacher. And so if you were sitting in Moses' seat, you were teaching everybody else. But if you're sitting among, that's where you're learning. Good. Which I think fits with his you know, humility. And you know, I love that we did a study on this in the youth group uh, last week. And that word humility in the Greek means self-forgetfulness. And I just love that. And Jesus was sitting there, and he's God. And he's letting all these people teach him. And he could probably recite their family tree. And he could mm-hmm. you know, tap into that godness of him and be like, I know what you ate for breakfast. 40 days ago, you know, I can do all these different things, but yeah, he's sitting there and he's learning from these guys and he's listening to these teachers. Um, and you know, it's just, it's, it's a pretty awesome thing. And then in verse 47, we see the words, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they were questioning him and he was giving answers that amazed means to be put out of your wits, uh, thrown into wonderment, you know, um, this theology that, that they were discussing and these questions, he had good questions and he was answering questions and he was asking questions and they were kind of like, wow, this is pretty amazing. This kid seems to know his stuff. Why is that impressive? He's from Nazareth. Okay. They had maybe a synagogue that maybe had an itinerant preacher that was there every once in a while. Really? I mean, this is backwoods person who probably, you know, maybe heard someone one day quote a Bible verse, but yet he's asking questions and he's seeking that knowledge and the fact he stayed around after everybody else's teaching was over. So they were amazed. They were astonished at what he was doing. So then mom and dad show up in verse 48. When the parents saw him, they were astonished. Okay? That means to be struck with amazement. Okay? Um, and then Mary says the words that we're going to have to deal with here. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That word distress means torment. You know, your father and I, it's like, wait till your dad gets home, right? Um, you know, Mary was upset. She was hurt by Jesus' actions. So does this mean that he was sinning? Does this mean, you know, that Jesus had committed a sin? Um, and this is where our detective work is going to have to start coming into this. Note what she does not say. She does not say, Jesus, why weren't you there when we told you to be there? Why did you disobey us? That's not what she says. She says, why did you hurt us? And so there's this, mm-hmm. her question lends itself to this whole, did Jesus actually sin? And I want to come back to this. We're going to come back to this and we're going to camp on at the end. Because I want you guys to be thinking about, you know, as, as future parents or as current parents or as parents who are now taking care of grandkids, you know, what is our role as parents when people hurt us but yet don't disobey us? You know, and then what is, and really for you guys, what I want you to help me with is, is how does God deal with us? when we are just immature versus when we are sinning? And is there a difference there? Or is it always the same? Um, so then we'll come back to that. Okay, just That's a little teaser. 49. And then Jesus responded to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Okay. Um, basically, he was saying, you know, first place you should have looked was here. You know, when you figured out I wasn't there, you should have probably come here. Father's house at age 12, basically he's saying, you know, I know that God is my father and this is who um, I belong to. And it's his first priority. You know, it's like, 
you're having to, they, 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 you know, they have this picture of they were trying to drag him away. Can I just stay for another hour, please? Can I just stay? I know it's dark and Jerusalem's closing down at night. There's no street lights. Can I just stay for an extra hour? I promise I'll come straight home. You know, and I just picture that, you know, he wanted to stay and just learn from these rabbis and these teachers and the priests. And, and I think there's more to it than that, than just the teaching. And I think we'll, we'll talk about this here in a second. But Jesus is really explaining his calling at this point. He's saying, you know what? I am of God's business. And that word um, of must be in my father's house. The actual perfect translation of that is I must be of my father's business. Uh, I must be of the stuff that my father does. And so we see that Jesus is saying, this is my goal. This is my, this is my life mission statement. And this is what I'm going to live and die and then raise from the dead for is to do my father's work. And so we see that submission right there. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because you were saying like they would, the mm-hmm. sons would do the work of their fathers. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly. That. Yeah. It's the, and you know, I found that definition for bar mitzvah and then what they do in that 13th year. You know, it's like, I wonder when, when the light came on for Mary and she went, whoa, okay. Like you just said, I'm of my father's work. So I'm not learning carpentry. I'm learning how to be the savior of the world. And that, to me, yeah, that's right. You nailed it. That did it better than anything I'd written down. Good job. Um, ironically, though, you know, he says, my father's house. Now, anybody who's studied the Bible yeah. ever knows that when he says, my father's house, he's saying, I am of the same lineage of God, yeah. which is equating himself with God, which is later, right there in the temple, where we used to have up there, uh, right in the temple, He's going to be put to death for that same thing, right? Right. Ironically, the kid is sitting there, and I wonder what the the rabbis would say. Oh, oh, he misspoke. Stop saying that. You're not his father. He's not your father. He's just God, you know? We can't even say his name because it's too holy and so on. But Jesus says it right there. It's like, his message don't change. It's the same message from day one in the temple than when he could talk, because he couldn't talk when he was 40 days old, you know? To the very end, when he's saying, you know, I and the Father are one, you know, my Father's work, you know, you say it so, he's getting smacked, he's getting crucified because of that. And then it's the same phrase that he says when he gets out and he's resurrected. Would people not have been around, like, during that time to remember that that was him? Because, like, they were all amazed. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? You know, because the thing about Nazareth is Nazareth is a really small town, okay? Maybe 100 people, maybe at best, at its biggest, maybe 500. Um, And so people refer to him not as Jesus bar Joseph. Mm -hmm. They refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. And even as, isn't this Jesus of Nazareth? So he's the only Jesus in town. And so um, I don't know if some of the priests that were there, you know, because it's going to be 18 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe, maybe some of the ones were there and they're like, oh, isn't this the guy from before? Mm -hmm. I would probably guess that some of them were, some of them were. But remember, unanimously, other than the two people that we know abstained from voting for Jesus' death, unanimously, everybody else didn't see it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, so let's talk for a second about why I think Jesus was here. Now, um, I'm going to go a little outside of Scripture, but I think it fits with the whole of Scripture. So here we are at the temple, right? The temple would have been bright white, could look at it during the day. The outer courts... And the, uh, would it be for the Gentiles? There's a little step up that you kind of see with those, those pillars. Those aren't really there. Those, that's kind of the wrong drawing. Um, they would have been the money changers would have been on the far outskirts. This is the court of the women here. And then you've got the court of the men is right inside that. And then you've got the court of the priests. And then you've got the holy place and the holy of holies and so on. 
Um, this was the place on earth that God's presence most directly resided, um, which is what that word heaven means in the Bible as well. It's where God's presence is. So really, this is where God makes himself known. And the Jews to this day still believe that, right? When they go to the Wailing Wall, they actually won't turn their back on it because they believe that wall is closer to where God actually is. Um, and they're offended by the fact that there's a Muslim mosque on there because they believe that point, for whatever reason, where the Holy of Holies would have been, was where God is most clearly seen. And that's back to the idolatry concept. Exactly. Absolutely. So it's today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're doing the same thing still. And so if we think about Jesus for a sec, his closeness to God had never been separated, okay? Um, until he became a man. And even then, he still was closer to God than any of us have ever been and really ever could hopefully ever experience. So when he was born, when he's 12 years old, this is the closest, if God's presence is still in the temple, okay, and there's some people that would debate that, but if Jesus says this is the first time he's been back to the temple, you got to think that there are people there that are worshiping him, not indirectly, they don't know it. They're worshiping God and they're doing all their temple stuff for the right reasons that are worshiping him, God's presence is made known, people are sacrificing to God. you got to think that this kind of feels like maybe home to him. Almost there's this kind of like a warm bath kind of feeling when Jesus comes back to the temple for the first time. It just feels right. Now there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, remember, he's going to fashion a whip and he's going he's gonna, to you know, overturn the money changers. He's going to yell at the priests and call them scrubbed out tombs, right? He's going to call him some other nasty stuff as well. But this is the first time he'd been back to that temple since he was a baby, been that close to the presence, or at least the worship, the center of the world where it's worshiping him. Yeah. Um, it kind of, kind of reminds me of like when you're away from home and you're really homesick, and mm-hmm. then you see something that reminds you of home, and that's like mm-hmm. closest you can be to home. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Do you? Do you think that, like, you know how when he was there as a baby and mm-hmm. Simeon saw him and, like, felt like the, that was the Lord's presence or whatever, do you think that people could also feel, like, that presence that of could Jesus be. walking mm-hmm. around? Yeah, I think that sometimes it's very apparent and people just turn to him. Other times I think that, you know, yeah, maybe they don't, maybe it's masked. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But, yeah, it seems like, because remember, it wasn't because Simeon was great. It was because God had lifted the veil from his eyes and had promised him, you're going to see this baby and he's going to be the Messiah. So it really was God's doing on that. Um, and if God decided to, you know, um, allow people to see it, then yeah, I think so. Absolutely. All right. So then when is the next time Jesus comes back to the temple? When's the first time he comes back to the temple as a man? Anybody know? John 4. Well, what's happening in John 4? It's cleansing. Well, no, the well but the actual um, yeah, when was reason the, why he was there. No, before that. Even before that. Satan takes him to the temple, takes him right up to the tippy tippy top, right up there. And he says, hey, Jesus, all you got to do is worship me and I'll give you everything so that you don't have to die and go through the pain of crucifixion, which Jesus knew about because he was God, but he hadn't experienced yet. So Satan takes him to the top of that and he goes, here you go. And so again, Jesus is like, I'm home, but I'm with Satan, right? And I'm having to now defend myself and give, not give in to the humanity that I have, the 40 days of fasting, the weakest point he'd ever been, and Satan saying, I'm willing to take away your pain if you just worship me. Um, and so, you know, he gets to be there and still in that presence and not necessarily like experience it the way he wants. And then the next time we see it, um, we see that Jesus weeps over uh, Jerusalem. 
And this is where Jesus would have been. This is the, this is the Mount of Olives. This is the Garden of Gethsemane here. Okay, so Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives. He's coming into Jerusalem. He knows that he's never leaving Jerusalem again until he's died and rose from the dead. All right? And you notice this is Jerusalem, right? Here's Herod's palace. Okay? Herod made a big, huge palace. Um, but you see the temple is huge. So when Jesus is standing and he's weeping over Jerusalem, this is the kind of view he has. Right? What's he looking at? He's looking at the temple, which is, again, in, in the minds of the, everybody at that point, that's the direct point where God is most present. And he's looking down on there and he's going, you don't get it. You're missing it. You're worshiping at this temple and I'm right here. I'm, I'm right here. Look up at me. You know, and then he's weeping. And a lot of people took this as like, oh, he's weeping because, you know, he's going to be suffering on the cross or the sins of the world are going to be laid on him. No, it's more than that. It's the separation from him and God, because that is the only point in the history of everything Mm -hmm. that Jesus and God are not directly connected. And look how close he is to the temple. He's going to be in the temple beaten, and then he's going to be taken on a hill, maybe like this. We don't really know where Golgotha is directly. We kind of have a couple ideas. I think that uh, Mark Driscoll said that the place where Golgotha is, the Muslims built a cemetery next to it, and then a mosque, and then now there's a transit center where buses go to refuel and clean themselves out, and so on. It's kind of just this ratty place. Um, And that's where they think Golgotha was. And so Jesus is that close to the presence of God or the place where people have worshiped God for centuries. And he feels that disconnect and he feels that, that, you know, that space there. Um, and it's interesting, you know, at that point we see the temple, um, the temples, uh, there's the, what the inside looks like. The curtain is torn, which to symbolize what God's presence is no longer in a place. It's now in our hearts and we are called the temple and we are called the place where God now most fully resides on this earth. Um, and so we see that temple being rent and that separation is no longer there for us, just like it had been for that time on the cross that Jesus had, had dealt with. Um, and I think that's just for me that the picture of this, the, his interactions with the temple was kind of a cool little study. Um, any comments or questions? I don't want to talk over anybody. You doing good? Okay. All right. Well, Kent doesn't have anything, so we'll keep going. Um, all right. So. At verse 50, we'll keep going on our text, verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Okay, I don't think that means that they didn't understand it when they were explaining it to Luke. I think at the time they did not understand it. But Jesus gets it. Um, he was starting to understand that he, he was so devoted to God. God was his father, even more so than family ties. And I'm, I'm reminded of that, that phrase of, you know, who, who does not hate their father and mother. And that doesn't mean, oh, I have to hate him. No, it just means that compared to the love you have for God, it's going to look like hate, your devotion. And so Jesus' devotion is to God. But yet at the same time, we can't skip on verse 51. Jesus was submitting to them. Okay, verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, down from the hill, came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Okay. The God of the universe who made them submitted to his mommy and his daddy for 18 years. Um, and you see that the connection there. We don't know how long Joseph lived. He seems like he was dead before Jesus started his earthly ministry. We don't really know. Um, and I, I wonder what the question was. You know, when did you know, other than Jesus' birth, that he was special, that he got that he was God? And I think Mary might have said, this is it. Um, notice that Jesus doesn't run ahead. He doesn't go, ooh, I, I, I'm here to save the world. I'm 13. Let's do it. Right? He doesn't. He goes and he submits for 18 years. When was the last time God told you to wait for something? 
right? 18 years is a pretty long time to wait for something. Some of you have only not even been alive 18 yet. So, you know, it's been a long time to even just wait for something. Um, but God's timing for things is right in his eyes, and it's perfect. Everything gets, I mean, all of the things that line up perfectly for Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist and the, really the, the environment being primed for him and the fact that the Roman Empire is at its zenith at this certain point where the, the, everybody speaking the same language, the language, just, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And God's timing is perfect. Don't yeah. run ahead of God. Jesus models that. And then in verse 52, brings us right back to where we were in verse 40. Just like at the start of this passage, we see Jesus growing and maturing as a young man. And the sign of maturity is that he was, he went, when he grew, he acted more mature. So that leads me to my application. And like I said, I need your guys' help with this because my application is very narrowly focused. It's really focused on parenting okay, and how to be a good parent. And I know for some of you, you're like, that's a long ways off. Others of you are like, well, you know, I think sooner as opposed to later. Others of us, we've been parents for a little bit. Some have been parents for longer and so on. But I think there's a connection there that for some reason, I don't know why, but the Lord just did not let me get it down on paper. So I'm going to ask you guys to help me at the end and see if we can take this message to parents. And then how does it apply to us as kids of God? Okay, so I want you guys to be thinking about that. But still listen to Um So, Jesus stays in Jerusalem. Mom and dad leave him there. Okay? Bible says Jesus never sinned. Mary and Joseph were clearly upset and hurt by this. So we have a couple options. We can say, well, the Bible says Jesus never sinned, so therefore Jesus never sinned. That doesn't work for me. This verse seems like, it sounds almost like a disobedience, but it's not. And um, I'm going to show you guys why. And that's because as parents, we have two functions that we do. I'm not going to write this word near as nice as Lindsay. We have two functions as parents that we do with our children. The first one is, that pen's not going to do it. The first one is correction. I don't know what it is. I think they're going to figure this out someday, but there's actually a scientific thing, I'm sure, that for some reason, if you're a great speller, as soon as you start writing on the board, you can't spell. So if I spell badly, then please don't judge me. I did graduate high school. And I think I nailed it. Good. All right. That was a lot of stress about. Okay, so correction versus discipline. And my handwriting always bugs me, too. That's a whole other story. So now, correction. This is the part I'm going to camp on for a bit, because I think this is where we as humans, we as Americans, we get it wrong a lot of times. Um, correction has to do with maturity, okay? So here are two things, correction versus discipline, <laughs> okay? That's great. All right, so let's talk about correction first. Correction is a response to immaturity. This is when a child does something because he or she is a child. Not because of rebellion or disobedience. This is the clumsy kid who tries to carry five things when they probably should only carry four, okay? And they drop them all, right? Um, the sick kid, like my son had a couple, like a week ago, who doesn't make it to the bathroom all the way because maybe he's distracted by playing a video game or doing something else. 
Uh, this is the this is the kid who um, you know does something just bonehead because they're clumsy. You know, they get to that age where it's like their feet are like man's feet, but their bodies haven't caught up yet, and they're tripping and falling and so on, right? Yeah, you know, so, yeah. Some people haven't left that age yet. Um, <laughs> we look at that and we say, as long as there's not a parent saying do this and they don't do it, that that's some place where we as parents need to correct, mm-hmm. not discipline. I mean, think about my son. Okay, what happened was he was having an upset stomach. He thought he was farting and he wasn't. Okay, um, and so me as me as a parent—that's as much as information as you're going to get on that one. Uh, as me as a parent, do I yell at him? How stupid are you? What's wrong with you? Why couldn't you know that that was poop coming out of your butt? What's wrong with you? Right? Would I do that? Does that make sense? You know, pair of the year award right here. Woo! Right? Kyle's going to no. love this teaching in like 12 know. years from now. <laughs> no. I've got a worse one. I mean, it's, it's yeah, we'll repost it on the Cornerstone sure. website. We can get transcripts of it. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make all of his future girlfriends listen to this sermon. <laughs> Are you sure? Did you look? This isn't, even, this isn't even the worst poop story about Kyle. I'm not going to share that one. Most of you already know that one. We can share it later. I don't want it recorded. Um, bad Parent of the Year Award, right? So instead of spanking him after I wipe it off, spanking him, right, or punishing him, you're going to go to your room for being a kid, being immature. Instead, I console. And then, when he was really upset. He was really embarrassed. We had somebody over. He was really embarrassed. He tried, you know, he, poor guy. It just melts me just even thinking about it. And so I went in there and I, I consoled him and I, we cleaned him up and then he was still really kind of shaky. And so I did something I normally do, I punched some swim trunks and I jumped in the bath with him and I play with him just in the bath. He's always like, dad, play with me in the bath. So I used to do it when he was really young. Now it's, we barely both fit, you know, and so, and with his sister, it makes me even more crazy. Um, but I jumped in the bath with him and I just, I just, you know, kind of held him for a little bit. I talked to him and I said, hey, you know what, when your tummy's this way, you need to be thinking this and you know and I'll be here to help you and, you know, and that's correction and that's what we need and that's why I like this picture that I chose is that dad's just like okay son let's talk about this you know let's let's walk through this and unfortunately we as parents we get this wrong we take our 12 year old or our four year old and they're doing things that make us think that they're at this higher level but they're still just kids right mm-hmm. Kyle you're four years old why can't you do that why can't you tie your shoes why can't you know that you can only carry two things at once? And why can't you know that if you slam the door, it's going to break the window? It's going to, you know, they're just kids. And it challenges me as a teacher because I'm teaching 18-year-olds, and they're not, they're not fully adults yet either, right? They're still learning. They're still, you know, and I need, to, I need to not let their immaturity be something I punish them for because the Bible does not support us for that. You know, do we overreact? Do we punish a child for something that is immature, I think as parents, I think we do a lot of times. What ends up happening is, is we look at the fact that it's inconveniencing us and we go, oh man, oh, my goal for tonight was to clean up poop in the bathroom. I mean, you know, oh, the last thing I wanted to do was buy a new screen door because my son slammed it. Oh, the last thing I want to do was buy new plates because now we have an unmatching set. And who, you know, I mean, it, it makes us inconvenient. But at the same time, as parents, it requires work on our part. You know, it's kind of like our walk with the Lord. Kenny and I were talking about this, and this came from her, so I'm just going to give her credit on that. Is that it's kind of like our walk with the Lord. We never arrive. As parents, it's work. You know, it doesn't, it's not like, oh, they've hit five. Sweet, I can stop. Oh, they've hit 12. Sweet. Oh, they're 18. Yes. Out of the house. 21. 
they move back, right? I mean, what, you know, whatever, you know, we, we see this, and unfortunately, we, we look at it as we've arrived, or that the kids are there to, to take the weight off of us, and really, it's our job to serve them, to take care of them. We've been entrusted with their lives. And when it comes to immaturity, it's our job to root it out. And we don't root it out by screaming. We don't root it out by punishing. We root it out by, here is what you need to do differently next time. Now, granted, if I tell Kyle, don't do this, and then the next time he does it anyways, that ain't immaturity anymore. Because my son remembers like things I've said like two years ago. And he's got this crazy locked up brain that he's like, remember when you said that, 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 that? And I was like, I don't even remember saying that, but I think that's probably right. <laughs> We've got to do this. There's no biblical mandate in the Bible anywhere to punish for immaturity. Nowhere. There's nothing there. I mean, think about as Christians, if God punished us for being immature in our faith, I don't think we ever would have grown. We would have just ceased to exist. He's given us that grace, that mercy of, you know, not punishing us for being immature, but for punishing us for our sin. And even then, he's punished himself for our sin, which is a whole other can of worms. Right before you get sure. to the next section. Um, so I have a question for you, John, because I'm not a parent. But let's say as we aren't fully matured in our faith. Mm-hmm. And as parents, right, yeah. you're not fully matured in your faith. Yeah. Okay, what, what do I do when Lindsay and I have a son mm-hmm. and... And I, I biff it as a dad. Yeah. I screw it up. Yeah. Is there is there a way to be a gospel-centered parent? Mm-hmm. Can you as a dad, you know, I'm sure Kyle's a bit young, but at some point say, hey, Kyle, daddy messed up on mm-hmm. this. Absolutely. Are you, is it okay to go back and, and then re-explain, hey, I messed up. I need to repent to God and I need to repent to you and mommy. Mm-hmm. And I need to explain to you the gospel again. This mm-hmm. wasn't right. This is how daddy should have acted. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the gospel again. And, and this is how, why Jesus can even forgive me and I make mistakes and teach your kids a gospel through your own mistakes. Mm-hmm. Cool. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think that that is so key with us is that, that humility that we saw with Jesus. He's sitting at the teacher's feet. He's learning from them. I think our kids learn so much by our mistakes more so than our successes. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, we can, I mean, we always do this in our life. Something happens and we kind of either pat ourselves on the back or we can kind of sort of be like, you know, I just, you know, I'm amazing, even though all this stuff that I am is from God, you know, and so when it comes to a, a, a failure, I mean, I've gone to Kyle on things and said, I'm sorry I got mad at you on that. And yeah, granted, he's got a four-year-old brain, maybe, I don't know what kind of brain he has, he has this crazy smart brain, but he's got a four-year-old brain, I'm trying to make up for the poop thing earlier, I said, you're really smart, Kyle, all right, um, no, but, you know, we can, we can, we can show our kids the gospel in that, yes, even though I mess up, there's forgiveness and there's repentance, true repentance. And we can show that in a way that, I mean, the world, the world doesn't get repentance. They don't Mm -hmm. get that. They get, Oh, I'm sorry for making you hurt. That's not repentance. Repentance is I'm sorry. I'm going the other direction. That's what we say to Kyle all the time when he goes, sorry, mommy. And we go, you know, that sorry means you're not going to do it again. Right. And he goes, yes, I know. Cause we've said it a hundred times, but that's really what it is. And as we, as parents, if we're, it should be a, an indictment on us. If we're having to apologize for the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. I'm sorry I screamed at you. I'm sorry that I, you know, did this, or I'm sorry that your mommy and I were yelling or what, you know, whatever the, whatever, I can't think of a good example, but, um, that is teaching our kids something as well. well that principle, I think at least, cause I'm, I'm just me, you yeah. know? So that principle extends to other areas of life. Mm-hmm. So 
even the people that aren't married or aren't married or aren't parents can learn in this situation if you're just married like me you know <laughs> Lindsay hey you know what this was wrong and this has to change and I'm sorry and let's talk about the gospel again yeah. and prayer and, and authentic like not doing that again mm-hmm. and then if you're just a kid at school whatever like to your friends I've had to repent to coworkers. Like I've said, hey, you know what? I shouldn't have laughed at that. That, you know what? That goes against the principles that I adhere to as a Christian, and I'm sorry for that. Why are you sorry? They don't understand it, like you said. But it's it's actually a more authentic way to do evangelism is just to be a Christian, mm-hmm. focus on the gospel, and live it out in the circumstances of your life, regardless of whether you have kids. Mm-hmm. And I think I think also too, you know, if we. And this is really hard. You know, as, as a parent, a lot of the views that Kyle and Olivia are going to have of God is going to come from how I and Katie treat them. And that, to me, is terrifying. You know, if, if my mind, I just would hate to think that something I do out of selfishness, out of the desire to make my life easier right here and now, could do anything to kill their faith. In God, I mean that. Just I mean I know that kids do kids do, and they're ultimately autonomous, free will beings, just like every single person in here. You weren't forced to come here; you came, all right. You all have your free will, but if I'm, I don't want to put stones in the way that God has to get out, you know. And if I'm constantly, you know, they never see me repent of anything. I never confess to them that I've done something wrong when I've done. I've never. You know, reached out for them and, and corrected them when they needed it and loved them. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna view God as a you were immature. Bang, you deserve hell. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a sin if you're immature. I, I I hope that I'm not that. And unfortunately, even as I'm sitting here thinking about, it, I'm going, wow, that wasn't great of me. Yeah, I did that the other day. I mean, it's like just a laundry list. And that's why I say we as believers, it's never done. We don't ever arrive. Okay, you know, Billy Graham, and he's about the best example I can think of, is still dealing with issues that Billy Graham needs to deal with to get himself right with the Lord. Like, but he's been a Christian. He's been this amazing man for 60, 70, 80 years, right? He's still dealing with stuff. He is not perfect. He is not Christ. We are never going to arrive. If we think we've arrived, we've taken our eyes off of Christ because we haven't arrived. And as parents, we've got to be so clear with our kids that we do wrong and we repent and we say I need to ask for forgiveness yeah you know um, I, well, it just puts it on my heart to say this I, over the last like few months I've gone through this really hard time of just um, you know Kaya is 16 she's my right hand in my life being a single mom and so she sees a lot of what I go through and a lot of times she's literally at my right in the car and her, you know, uh, life is hard and she, she um, is right there to be uh, my best friend and my daughter and my confidant. She's a homeschooler, so she's right there all the time. <laughs> a lot of times hear a lot of my gripes and my praises and, mm-hmm. and my gripes. And so uh, the last few months I've been really discouraged and just, you know, really down and like, uh, you know, just kind of arguing with the Lord about, you know, really, I've been going through so many trials and like, when do I get a blessing and da 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 And um, the Lord really showed me over the last like couple of weeks, you know, to um, kind of give me a swift kick in the tush and uh, what are you showing your children and what's, what are you reflecting out of your mouth and... 
they started to become really aware of what Kaya was hearing and what she was seeing, and I'm sure the boys too, but really it was becoming really aware what Kaya was, what I was showing Kaya, and my faith is so important to me, and so uh, I had to go to her and say, I've led you wrong. Uh, I need you to forgive me because the Lord showed me that I had led you wrong and you were, I, what I was reflecting to you was wrong. And I literally had to sit her down, Nolan, and say I was wrong. The Lord showed me that I was wrong to cool. you and I was showing you wrong. I wasn't giving my faith to him and I wasn't letting, I wasn't giving everything to him, my trust to him. and and. I could see in Kai's eyes what that meant to her cool. because she could see I was losing my faith in the Lord. I wasn't putting my faith in, in the right spot. So to answer that, you know, what that importance is as a parent, I know for two parents it's hard, you know, you, you can balance each other out. For a single parent, I know Tatum probably struggles with this too. It, you don't have that other person to go, hey, you need to check, check yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes we have a tendency to lean on our kids because they're the ones there. It is important to, to step up and say something to your to yourself and to your kids to point, I don't know if any of this makes sense, to point Great. yourself out and mm -hmm. say, I know with me it's, it's always been a rule on my head to point out when I'm wrong. But it's especially so when I know that the Lord's saying you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's super educational. That yeah. I don't, I'm not a parent. But the thing that I, I love that he's talking about is just this Martin Luther in the beginning of his 99 theses in the introduction said all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. <laughs> talking to the Catholic Church, like time to repent, boys. But um, and that is that's the reality, and that's what I'm learning right now. Absolutely, and I think this is a sobering verse just to contribute to it, because sure. I know you're right on the edge of getting um, pushing it toward a more theological. Uh, but he says, James, that is in three verse one. Not many of you should become teachers. That's scary, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So, I'm, I'm obviously reapplying that to parenting, I know that is a stretch, but... The idea freaks me out. You and I have had conversations about this, and I'm just like, you're a teacher. What do you think? And you're like, you shouldn't think about it too much. But that is that is the reality. It's like, as a parent, in some sense, you're a teacher, and that's kind of what you're getting at, just to add a biblical yeah. backing for that. But. As a child, like, as having, like, experiencing parents come to you and say, like, this was wrong of me, like, as the parent, saying that to me, like, that was a blessing. That's, like, one of the biggest blessings that I've gotten from my parents is them saying, like, I've hurt you, like, this was wrong with me, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry for what we've done, but, like, just, like, hearing my parents be able to say that to me and, like, acknowledging that there was hurt there is, like, such... That's the gospel in itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, like... Not obviously, but like having yeah. them come up to me and be like, we hurt you. Let's get through this through communication and like, <clears throat> obviously we're going to hurt our parents more than they hurt us probably <laughs> in the long run because we're kids and we're going to, this 
be rebellious and go against our parents' order and all that stuff, but uh, it comes to a point of, my dad always says, comes to a point of being an adult where you and your child can talk about things and uh, get correction. Like, your parents can correct themselves to you. I don't know if that makes sense. And can I just, I don't know if this is overstepping anything, but can I share just that? Lindsay, one of the things she told me when we were newly married was one of the most beautiful um, depictions of the gospel was seen in her mom and dad, you know, who were younger in the faith when she was little. And she watched her dad just, and mom together, just grow exponentially and become just at the Lord's side, moment by moment throughout the day. And him being humble enough to say, hey, Lindsay, this is what I did wrong. And that's even where I got that. It's like, oh. You know, Lord, how the Lord uses that. It's awesome. Well, I would say, I would say the overarching note, I think, in it is to bring reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, it's, I, granted, it's the converse of it, but like in Matthew, is it like 15 or 18? We're talking about church discipline. It's like, it's, a, it's a, like I said, it's, it's the opposite, but it's like, you there's a there's something that's broken there. He's sinned against you, or what we're talking here. Mm-hmm. I sinned against him. It doesn't matter. He's mm-hmm. like, it doesn't say wait or something like that. It says go to him mm-hmm. together and make that reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's what a lot of, a lot of correction is. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it's, it's reconciling together. Now, and, and, and maybe even as well with discipline mm-hmm. itself, but I mean that's the goal. Is it's it's to break, it's to bring the the weaker up and and bring bring close together. Mm-hmm. I think too, though, like the whole thing, like holding teachers accountable more so than on you know, like people mm-hmm. who aren't teachers. I think it does apply to parents too, though, to a certain extent, because ultimately children are mm-hmm. the Lord does entrust you with yeah. those children. Yeah. Like, he gives you those children. And I see a lot of my work at the preschool in a secular environment. It's like, these guys are just pawning their kids off to us to raise, you know? And the way they even treat them when they're with them, they're like, come on, let's go. Or whatever, you know? Like, no greeting, no whatever. Or if they were in trouble that day, they're just like, you're going to get it when you get home. Or, you know, anything like that. It's just sad because it's like, the Lord has, regardless of whether or not you're going to like you know, come to know the Lord or acknowledge that He is Lord. He's still entrusted these kids to you, you know. And I fear for those kids when they get older, not having that parent know the Lord. You know, let's say they do come to the Lord, you know, then growing up in a secular home, you know, seeing the way their parents were or whatever and not having that, like, reconciliation or understanding of the gospel in that sense. I don't know. It's just sad because a lot of people don't get that, you know, from their parents. Yeah. I think too, as as parents and as I mean, I, it, our words only go so far. Um, mm. I thought about that a lot this week, um, just thinking about how you talk to someone and reason them into believing as a as a person who has all these arguments against belief. And I just really, honestly, it's your it's your actions and kids and your friends and your family members. They see you at your most vulnerable. They see you all the time, and your actions have to match what's coming out of your mouth. Um, and unfortunately, what happens with us a lot of times is we go to church and we amen at the right point and we, we, oh yeah, yeah, repentance is good. And then we go and we live something totally opposite. Um, and the gospel is, and really, I mean, and Carly, you're right. It is the gospel, what you saw. Absolutely. The gospel is also when on Monday morning, 
I'm repenting of the things that I did on Monday, you know, and I'm doing that every single day. And when my son sees me do something wrong and I say, I'm sorry, I repent of that. He doesn't see it as often or he doesn't see it ever again. Or, you know, that's the thing. And that's the part the world doesn't get because the world looks at us and says, we're just a bunch of, you know, hairless monkeys that have no control over ourselves and our genes decide everything. And so there's no way to change. And the gospel is that there is a <clears throat> change. Yeah. And that change is amazing when it happens. Um, okay, so we talked about correction. And that's with a child. And that's where you, 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 you bring them up in their immaturity to full maturity through communication, through talking and all that. And again, I am feeling very under-equipped to be telling anybody what to do parenting-wise. And so I apologize if it comes across that way. Um, Discipline-wise, discipline is, of course, the correct response to disobedience and sin. Um, and anybody who does not think that the Bible supports discipline, just <laughs> look at the cross. Um, you know, it is absolutely um, about discipline. Christ had the wrath of God poured out on him for our sake. Um, and just the idea that there are people walking around that still have the wrath of God on them, oh, it's just terrifying. So Jesus' response here, Jesus' response when he says, didn't you guys know I'd be in my father's house? There's no snotty attitude. You can't read into that. There's no, yeah, well, mm, you know, there's none of that. What you see is him saying a simple, this is where my dad is. This is where I'm closest to Abba Father. And they're worshiping him here. And I'm talking about him and I'm learning about him. How could you not know I would be here? Um, and so that connection there, but that discipline that we have, um, whether it be towards a kid, whether it towards a person you're ministering to, um, you know, or students or anybody that you have in your life that you are in relationship with that needs that discipline, that discipline has got to, like Paul said, it's got to also have that reconnection as well. Um, this last week, and I, you know what? I just apologize for all this, the stories from our house. But um, this last week, we had our first, and Chanel knows about this because you heard about it in class. We had our first... John, Kyle did this. I told him, wait till you get home. And so I had that hanging on me of when I get home, I got to spank my son. And so I'm like going, oh, this is so horrible. And I'm driving home and I'm trying to listen to a sermon. I'm trying not to get pumped up, you know, to go punish him. Like but uh, just, just to be ready for this, because when I'm getting home, I love the opening the door and daddy. You know, and my little girl, mommy, right? Because um, that's all she could say. So, and, um, so I have all of these, these feelings, because then I got to go and it's like, hi, son, how was your day? Oh, I have to punish you, you know? But at the same time, I got to go and I got to punish him, and then I got to console him, and I got to wrap him in my arms and go, it's okay. And if you do it again, I'll still punish you, but I'll still love you just this much. And that that is just such a picture that I can't wait for you to have. And I can't wait for many of you to have it. You know, this idea of you punish the child, but then you love them. And, you, you, and just like with that correction, when I'm sitting in that bathtub with Kyle and I'm trying to explain to him how not to poop his pants, you know, I'm also there to say, here's what you deserved. Here's the repercussions for your action. But I'm here to help you and I'll help you get through this. And we're going to work through this. And that discipline, um, it's, I think it's so cool that the, the idea of discipline, of whack, that's discipline. But at the same time, someone who is not having things in their life is also someone who's very disciplined. And I love that picture. The, the marathon runner who only eats a thousand calories a day and runs every single day is disciplined. And so 
when I look at my, my kids and I'm saying, I'm going to discipline you, I'm disciplining them. I just love that that's the same word. Thank you, Webster's, or whoever decided that. Yeah. Um, I, I was just thinking like how they're both so important in really most relationships of, you know, like a parent and a child. But like, I was just thinking about like the Super Nanny show, how it's like no discipline, mm -hmm. like all correction. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's just like, that doesn't work. You're telling them, okay, just tell them not to do that, but don't discipline them. And you're expecting them their relationship with their child to work out. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. And they don't love their kid because you say it all the time, but every son he loves, he disciplines. God spanked me really hard like two weeks ago, and I might, my bottom's still red from it, but my spiritual bottom. We'll take your word. Spiritual. Take your word. But, but he does. He loves you. That's love. It's not love afterwards like you're hugging Kyle. It's like, Wow, I love you. <laughs> and then come here and let yeah. me really show you how that experience yeah. is. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think you guys have answered my question that I asked you. You know, you theologians here, you're all theologians. Um, in that you guys have related this back to not only is this a parenting little lesson, which you guys didn't expect probably to get when you walked in the door, but it's also how God relates to us in that he corrects us and his word does this amazingly and then in discipline he disciplines us and he wants us to be disciplined in our adoration or just loving of him and I think we want to get to that point where Jesus was with his of course I'm going to be with my father's of course I'm going to be here this is where God is most present and that's the relationship that we want to have and when we have that relationship then everything lines up and what we're made for our teaching our, our living everything matches up and yeah it's not perfect but it's working towards it it's giving us that little glimpse of what heaven's going to be like because heaven god makes his presence known most fully that's what we get to experience little slivers of when we start getting closer and closer mm -hmm. to him all throughout this life so truly we can experience heaven on earth and how he lives in us and how fully he's here let's pray Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, I ask that you would just use these words and these topics we've talked about tonight, Lord, to just be glorified in us. Lord, we want, we want your correction. We want your discipline when needed, Lord. We want it because it shows, you how much, shows us how much you love us, how much you want to grow us. I pray that, Lord, we would be um, better examples to those around us. Lord, if we have someone that we have wronged or someone that we have hurt or something that we careless words or things like that i pray that we would not walk but that we would run to that person to like carly said to show them the gospel to show them what it means to repent because ultimately lord that's what this is all about is that we stink we're horrible we need your son's blood lord we repent of what we've done lord i, I think about my day even today as um, getting prepared for tonight, just the things that I've done and said and the attitudes I've had in front of my family, in front of my friends, in front of just complete strangers. And I just pray, Lord, that you would forgive me and that, Lord, that you would help me to repent of all the things that I need repentance for. Lord, help us to just be a church that is all about loving you and repenting. Lord, I pray that you would just be glorified in the songs we're about to sing and the lives we're about to live. In your name, amen. Amen. amen.